that's how I stumbled into art therapy. It was fascinating, so much more challenging than art teaching that I, I felt like the ugly duckling who finds the swans. Hi there. Welcome to this MindRamp podcast. I'm your host, Michael C. Patterson, CEO of MindRamp Coaching and Consulting. And today, I'm talking with renowned art therapist, author, and educational filmmaker, Dr. Judith Rubin. Dr. Rubin is a true pioneer in the field of art therapy. In this podcast, Judy talks about how she found her way into the young field of arts therapy, and in the process, she gives us a history of how the field developed and matured. Early in her career, Judy appeared as the art lady on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and with Fred Rogers' encouragement, Judy began making educational films herself about art therapy including Art Therapy Has Many Faces, Creative Healing and Mental Health, and Art Therapy, A Universal Language for Healing. She's written numerous books on art therapy, including Child Art Therapy, The Art of Art Therapy, My Mom and Dad Don't Live Together Anymore, Artful Therapy, and she was also the editor of Approaches to Art Therapy. Judy is a past president and honorary life member of the American Art Therapy Association, and she also served on the board of the National Committee Arts for the Handicapped and the Task Force on the Arts for the President's Commission on Mental Health. Since retiring from clinical practice, she has devoted her energies to creating and disseminating films on arts and therapy through a nonprofit organization called Expressive Media. It's always fascinating to learn how people get into their career tracks. Did you start as a psychotherapist? Was that your initial? No, I was an artist, and that was my wish, my goal. Somewhere in college as an art major, I decided I wasn't good enough to make it as a fine mm. artist because, there's, as with music, there's uh, many more talented people than there are buyers or, or spots in orchestras. <laughs> so. I liked working with children. I had done some of that as a camp counselor and informally in my family and neighborhood. So I thought, well, all right, I'll be an art teacher. That way I'll get to do something with art where I can go on and do my own painting and sculpting and at the same time encourage others to do so. Mm -hmm. So after uh, graduating with an art major at Wellesley, I went to Harvard and went to the School of Education where I did my practice teaching in art education. Mm -hmm. And for the first two years uh, after we were married, my husband was getting his degree there as well. Um, In Cambridge, Massachusetts and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I taught art in Mm -hmm. public schools and liked it very much. (laughs) But but I didn't fit in very well. Why was that? Uh, You know, I think it was timing as much as anything. This is 1959, we're talking about, or 58. In Cambridge, I was in trouble because I brought in books from my own collection because the the school didn't have a library. I also moved the furniture around very naively. I was very young and very idealistic about being a teacher. And I thought, well, I just do what came naturally. And I did. But Unbeknownst to me, I was offending the other teachers. And uh, 
moving the furniture wasn't so agreeable, apparently. Was that but because it's, it's an implicit criticism of the way they were doing it or because there were rules about how you were supposed to? The, the former. I would say they felt threatened and uncomfortable, and they wanted me to use, I remember, stencils like coloring books for children to color in. Of course, that was <laughs> antithetical to my ideas about creativity, so I never right. rejected them handing me those, but I didn't use them. And the other crime, I think this is the quiet crime I committed, was staying after school because I honestly, the, the other teachers would race the kids out the door. And I was so excited about what was going on that I would stay and organize things in the classroom. Anyway, the, the day I got in real trouble after I had already resigned, fortunately, because we were moving to Pittsburgh, was when I used, when I, one of the children opened The Family of Man which was a book put out by the Museum of Modern Art, a beautiful photographic exhibit. I was you just know, showing my grand my granddaughter copies of it. They're, it's a magnificent book. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. But, <laughs> and, and, and we had a whole afternoon discussion stimulated by the photograph of a child being born. And I was very careful to say that the stork could also be involved and not <laughs> disrupt any of the... The mythologies. Exactly. And yeah. I went home and I said to my husband, I've had the most wonderful day today. The children, I can't wait to tell you about it. They were so engaged, so curious, so interested. And they loved seeing how mm. people in different parts of the world live. He said, he's six years older. And he said, be prepared when you go back tomorrow. And sure enough, there was the principal, my supervisor, and two sets of angry parents asking to see the dirty book. <laughs> By their standards, it was a dirty book because it had people who weren't fully closed. Fortunately, we left for Pittsburgh soon thereafter, <laughs> where I also got in trouble, first for using slides from the Carnegie Museum, which were not in the syllabus, right. adding something to the syllabus, right. for not wearing high heels. Not only were skirts required in 1959, but also Heels. You had to wear high heels, which as an art teacher was hard because you walked around a lot. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> this is almost it's sad. Um, mm -hmm. I was called into the principal's office for undermining the other teacher's discipline. And why? Because the children had told other children that I didn't use the paddle. They had a wooden paddle still in every classroom. Art teachers nice. don't need to use a paddle because children love art. It wasn't that I was being holier than now. I wouldn't have used it probably in any case because it was, right. wouldn't be my way of disciplining. But I was dressed down for this, at which point I decided, okay, it's time to start a family. So interestingly enough, I ended up in art therapy in part, I think, because of the unpleasant experiences in school. I loved working with the children. I really did. But it was I didn't fit with the culture of the time, either the teachers or the supervisors, you know, the punishment methods. You were ahead of your time, obviously. Yes, I think I think my, my way of teaching would be more acceptable nowadays. Yeah, in some circles. So going back to your early years as an artist, you were frustrated by teaching art just because of the context in which you had to do it, I guess. 
When did the, the therapeutic aspect start coming into it? When did you feel like you wanted to meld the two disciplines? And I guess, when did you feel that art could be therapeutic? Well, I first knew about it when I was a graduate student and I was in an advanced seminar in child psychology, and there were just 10 of us. And the teacher said, each of you can research any area you want. Just come back and be prepared to present a whole session. I think they were three-hour classes, and give us some readings and teach us about your area of interest. I don't think I'd ever been given such an open-ended <laughs> invitation right. to study what fascinated me. So I read everything in the Harvard Library about the use of art in child psychology, and some mm -hmm. of it had to do with understanding children, and some of it had to do with helping children diagnosis and therapy. And that was the first time I saw the term art therapy because mm -hmm. Margaret Namberg had published some studies in journals in the 40s, and then they were printed in a monograph and uh, had been published. And then there were other people working with children, not art therapists, but psychologists, psychiatrists, play therapists, who obviously would be using art, and some were focusing more on it than others. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'd had one class in undergraduate where my teacher had done a study of differences in children's finger paintings based on differences in child-rearing practices, toilet training to be specific. Uh. <laughs> and, and there were significant differences. Really? Uh. That was, yeah, that, that was my first awareness that art could tell something about people, that you uh. could learn something about them. So it had always been my personal yeah. pleasure and outlet. And then I thought, Oh, you can learn something about people. Yeah. Then, oh, you could help people. Well, okay, I'm not a therapist. I'm a teacher, but wouldn't that be interesting? There was no field at that time, no yeah. discipline. It hadn't been formed. There were only two books, I think, with the term in it. You are listening to a discussion with Judith Rubin, a pioneer in the field of art therapy. This is the MindRamp Podcast, and I'm your host, Michael C. Patterson. Judy is well into her 80s now and is still going strong. Why don't you take a, a few moments to talk about your company and your work with Ellen and what you offer? Sure, yeah. Well, my friend Ellie is a drama therapist, Ellie Irwin. She was a Ellie. pioneer in her field. We both started in the 60s before there were associations or professions. And so <laughs> you could call me a pioneer. I think I'm a, a largish fish in a very small pond because <laughs> there wasn't much of a pond when I entered. Right. So it was, in that sense, very lucky because we could really invent it as we went along. And it allowed me to be more creative about different ways of working with families right. so forth groups. And we worked together at a child guidance center, an outpatient clinic, and then at a psychiatric hospital, the one I had started at in 63. And we started a creative and expressive arts therapy department with drama, movement, music, poetry, art, all the expressive therapies, served the whole large tri-state center for psychiatric treatment. And then we got tired of administration and loved doing therapy. So in the meantime, when I was working with Fred Rogers, he suggested making a film about something I was telling him about. And I had made films, Ellie had made films, we had videotaped, which was then available at the hospital. We had videotaped sessions. 
we wanted to take them with us because we were using them and teaching and people were wanting to borrow them, rent them. Mm-hmm. It was very informal. And the hospital said, well, we can't give them to you unless you form a nonprofit. And so we formed Expressive Media. Right. And then later, it became necessary to distribute a video I was working on to go with a book. And so now, Expressive Media has a film library, which launched, I think it was May of 2020. It's already two years. It's over 100 titles that are up there now. And probably there will be 200 up there when we finish getting everything in the pipeline available. And we're starting to offer subscriptions to universities right. and individuals. And these are all films that you and Ellie created over the course of the no, year? They're no, multiple. They, they're, yeah, they're multiple. They're, there's a batch that were produced by Expressive Media. And those I did create, or Ellie did, or we worked together. And one was about Fred Rogers, who got me into filmmaking in the first place. There are 18 of those Expressive Media films, and then there are 110 others up there, which were made by other people. I but see. when I was making films, I would look for good footage from other people to represent whatever area I was making it about. So I collected all this wonderful. Mm. I saw a lot of films that never got seen very much because educational films don't. They have short lifespans. And also in those days, in the 70s and 80s, people were willing to film art therapy sessions. So we have a lot of actual good sessions conducted by people with experience and that's very hard to do nowadays because of because of privacy uh, litigation privacy legal anxieties so it's a rich resource for people in training and also for getting continuing education credits so we're hoping that it will become something that many training programs in the creative arts therapies but also related fields like psychology or gerontology or psychiatry will will be interested in yeah so what happened was as i said i i decided to start a family and we did and i worked part-time i taught some courses at a local college to people in early childhood and elementary education on art education. And because I was very interested in this whole area, I did a short course on therapeutic aspects of art education, because in the 50s and 60s, there were a lot of art educators who were interested in the psychological effects of art. And one of them was quite dominant. Victor Lowenfeld had written the Bible that every art educator practically used. And he had a whole chapter on therapeutic aspects of art education. So I was beginning to apply it. And then I was sitting with a friend in her kitchen and I admired her child's painting. And she said, oh, they're collecting the children's art at the preschool where my child goes. I said, oh, how interesting. She said, yes, they're doing a longitudinal study. Oh, And I said, do you think I could volunteer for that? And she said, I think you could meet with the director, which I did. And her name was Margaret McFarland. She ended up being Fred Rogers' mentor, as well as mine. And it was Margaret who first invited me to come and work part-time, which was perfect, a day and a half a week. And then we'd like you to do some art therapy at the psychiatric hospital. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I'm not a therapist. I'm a teacher. She said, don't worry, I'll supervise you. And that, that's how I stumbled into art therapy. Um, it was They were schizophrenic children 
it was fascinating, so much more challenging than our teaching that I, I felt like the ugly duckling who finds the swans. This was in the Department of Child Development at the University of Pittsburgh, ran this study center. It was founded by Eric Erickson and Ben Spock. Wow. Yeah. Er- Erickson came every year to comment on a case. And that year they wanted me to present a case of one of the children because of the artwork, which was so eloquent. And Erickson was very encouraging. I listened to an interview that you gave and you mentioned this idea about Erickson. And as I remember, you asked him for advice and what you should read and so on. And he said, don't read anything. Go with your instinct. Am I remembering that correctly? Oh, you're quite right. Yes. Well, that's a pretty remarkable thing to say, isn't it? Well, well, I think he was wrong, but you know, <laughs> it, it might have worked for him. He was a genius. Oh, that's uh, right. You pointed out he didn't even finish college. Is that correct? Right. That's amazing. Well, yeah. but he must have seen something in you that you had a, a, an intuitive sense of what should be done. But that was not enough for you. You also wanted academic grounding. And- oh, I wanted to understand more so I could be more intentional and purposeful in what I did or didn't do. And I do think the training was very helpful. I ended up doing psychoanalytic training first and then getting a PhD while I was doing the analytic training. But yeah, I think he was it was right for him, not right for me, but to the extent that to be a good therapist, there are certain personality components that probably can't be taught that are best if relating to other people comes naturally. Yeah. So would that have to do with empathic qualities? That Well, that's one way to talk about them. I think, you know, being able to be present with another and totally focused on the other is, um, it's not easy for some people. And it's, and yet for curious people, and I consider myself extremely curious, it's fascinating. Fascinating indeed. You can learn more about Judy Rubin and Ellie Irwin at their website, which is expressivemedia.org, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-I-V-E-M-E-D-I-A dot O-R-G. I want to thank Judy Rubin for taking the time to talk with me and explain how she, to quote, stumbled into becoming a pioneer in this fascinating field that brings together the disciplines of the arts with the sciences of psychology and therapy. In a second podcast with Judy, we spend more time exploring the nature of art and why art proves to be such a powerful tool in therapeutic and wellness settings. Check it out. Oh, and both Judy and I knew and were influenced by Fred Rogers. So if you were a fan of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, you might be interested in a podcast of mine called In the Neighborhood of Love, in which I discuss Fred Rogers' almost mystical power to bring out the best in people. Well, thanks for listening. Here's to crafting a successful longevity for yourself. Take care of your brain. Keep expanding your mind. And use that wonderful mature mind of yours to care for your loved ones and to protect the planet that sustains us all. Bye-bye.